We're going to continue our study in the book of Nehemiah in our time together. Our journey through the post-exilic time period is almost over. For tonight we are considering the final chapter in the book of Nehemiah. If you remember in our previous study, we considered the dedication ceremony. It was a joyous occasion at a time of worship and celebration. And one would expect this to be quite the appropriate scene to finish the book on. This would be the happy ending that we are so accustomed to. But this is not the case in the drama of Nehemiah. There is still a twist in the tale and this is recorded in the 13th chapter. We're going to consider the first nine verses and hence this will form our reading. So Nehemiah chapter 13, commence reading at verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. And on that day they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people, and therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever, because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them, that he should curse them. Now howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now it came to pass when they had heard the law that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. And before this, Eliashib, the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied unto Tobiah. And he had prepared for him a great chamber, which aforetime they laid the meat offerings, the frankincense and the vessels, and the tithes of the corn, the new wine and the oil, which was commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the porters and the offerings of the priests. But in all this time was not I at Jerusalem, for for in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes king of Babylon came I unto the king, and after certain days obtained I leave of the king. And I came to Jerusalem and understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God, And it grieved me sore, therefore I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of his chamber, then I commanded, and they cleansed the chambers, and thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. Amen. Uh, The title for the sermon this evening is Courageous Confrontation. Uh, Let's pray. Now, Father, we do thank you uh, for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity to take some time out of our busy weeks to pray together and to consider your word. You know, Father, we do thank you for your word, that it is reliable and sufficient and relevant. And we ask this evening that you speak to us. It is our desire to hear from you. Please remove all distractions, hindrances and obstacles and do your good work in our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, when the cat's away, the mice will play. You know, this is a proverbial saying that we are all familiar with. And the truth found within is illustrated very clearly before us. You know, Nehemiah had to report back to Artaxerxes. You know, if you remember, Nehemiah was the king's official cupbearer. And the king had authorized and assisted Nehemiah in returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls. But this return was never meant to be a permanent arrangement. 
In chapter 2 and verse 6, the king poses the question, How long shall thy journey be, and when wilt thou return? This was always the arrangement, that once the mission was accomplished, Nehemiah would return. And this makes much sense, for the king had made quite the investment in this particular project. And hence he would want to ensure that his generosity had not been abused, and also he could then regain the services of one of his valuable employees. Notice in verse 6 that it was in the 32nd year of the reign of the king that he returned. In chapter 5, verse 14, we are told that Nehemiah first came to Jerusalem in the 20th year of the king. So if we do the mathematics, it tells us 12 years had been spent accomplishing the rebuilding mission. What is particularly interesting is that the physical labor aspect, the rebuilding of the walls itself, consisted of only 52 days. Just two months out of a possible 144. Of course, much planning would have been involved before undertaking such a project. Sourcing materials and so forth would take much time. And also there would be the time to travel to Jerusalem and then back again included within this time period. But nevertheless, it is evident that the vast majority of the time was dedicated to reforming the people rather than the walls. And hence we can conclude that the people were much harder work. Spiritual revival and recommittal was a much more difficult task. Building spirituality was harder than rebuilding the walls. In returning to the king, which I'm sure... Nehemiah done hesitantly, for much work was still required. His heart was in Jerusalem, not in Persia. You can almost picture Nehemiah like the child. You know, Mom, do I have to leave yet? I don't want to go. And yet, in obedience to the authority that God placed over him, he returned. We are not told how long Nehemiah was required to remain with the king. Uh, The text simply states certain days. Most scholars estimate that this period was a couple of years. And during this time when the cat was away, the mice certainly did play. And when Nehemiah returned, how horrifying the scene must have been that he discovered. You can imagine the great enthusiasm and excitement that must have swept through Nehemiah like a raging torrent as he returned to Jerusalem. I am sure that not a day went by where he did not think of the city, think of the people and wonder how they were progressing. And no doubt hoping that the men that he left in charge were continuing the great work. But the feelings of joy... And anticipation would have quickly turned to feelings of anger and disappointment when he realized what had unfolded. When he discovered the great spiritual decline. When he saw the spiritual fire that was burning so brightly when he left was now barely a smolder. And there must have been a sword through his heart when he discovered the abomination that had unfolded within the temple precinct. 
For Eliashib, a priest, perhaps even the high priest, according to verse 28, a spiritual leader, a man of spiritual influence, had formed an alliance with Tobiah. Do you remember Tobiah? You know, along with his partner in crime, Sanballat, they were the chief antagonizers and striving to halt the construction process. They tried every trick in their book to stop this work from happening. They were the enemies. They hated the Jews. In fact, they took advantage of Jerusalem's disadvantage to line their own pockets. And here the priest associates with this wicked man, commits compromise in forming an alliance. Now the word allied in verse 4 is often used throughout the Old Testament to refer to a family connection. Often speaking of a marriage joining two families to form an alliance. And this was particularly common amongst royalty. So this term, at the very least, gives us an idea of the strength of the alliance. But it may also mean that the priest family and Tobiah's family had joined in marriage. We see in verse 28 that if this Eliashib is the high priest, his grandson had married the daughter of Sambalat. You know, what an atrocity. And perhaps this is what enabled Tobiah to gain a foothold along with other marriages. But it was not just an alliance that was formed. But Eliashib allowed Tobiah, the enemy, to dwell in the temple. In fact, he gave him rooms within the temple precinct. Now, well, what an abomination this is to allow the servant of Satan to live in God's house, to bring the fox into the chook pan, to allow this Ammonite, who in God's law was forbidden to be in the temple, to allow him to live in it. In fact, the priest had cleared some of the storerooms which would hold the offerings that that were given by the people. These offerings would be used to compensate the Levites for their work within the temple. He cleaned out these rooms which led to the Levites being mistreated and neglected and allowed the great enemy to dwell in the temple. He opened the front doors and invited the enemy straight in. You know, as Puritan Matthew Henry put it, a wretched thing it was that Eliashib should lodge Tobiah in the courts of God's house. It was to confront God himself. You know, this is a a terrible scene. It, It would be like us if we had a church premises and a church manse to open our building and our house for the local atheist movement to conduct meetings and teach their propaganda. That this is the sense. The enemy is allowed to set up camp within. And what audacity on the part of Tobiah. That there is no shame. What what a hide for him to reside in God's house. But the greater atrocity is that the spiritual leader had allowed such a despicable action to take place. He abused his God-given position to allow the temple to be violated. 
to be desecrated. He permitted and encouraged such debauched behavior. You know, how devastating and atrocious this scene is before us. That God's house has been defiled in such a way that such putrid compromise had been embraced. That the enemy lived within and the spiritual leader allowed it. And the warning is quite plain and simple. The church must be on guard. Alert and aware to not allow similar things to unfold. For unfortunately, how many churches have allowed the enemy to set up within? How much compromise has been embraced and and purity left to thrive within? How many churches are now closed or almost lifeless or its mission is so contrary to the scriptures because compromise has been embraced? The enemy is allowed within And often spiritual leaders are either too spineless to confront it or like Eliashib, encourage and embrace the compromise. The warning is clear, and yes, it's sobering, to be alert, to be aware and not allow the enemy within our church, to not embrace compromise with this world and impurity, to chase out the Tobias. And we must not allow the white ant of compromise and impurity to eat away at the structure of our church. But it's not here where I want to focus, but rather on Nehemiah's reaction. In verse 7, upon his arrival, he learns of the great atrocity that is occurring in the temple. And this must have immediately infuriated Nehemiah. You can picture the hot fury bubbling away inside, ready to explode. You can almost sense his anger, his disappointment, and his hurt that such a scenario had unfolded. Perhaps there was an essence of unbelief. You know, surely not. Not, not Tobiah. Not, not our enemy. But his worst fears were sadly confirmed. I want to draw your attention to verse 7 where it says he understood the evil. This term translated understood means to diligently consider, to discern, to view, to regard carefully. So in other words, he considered the situation. He checked the facts, considered what was happening and then determined the appropriate reaction. Now verse 8 records for us the decided action. Nehemiah with burning with righteous anger, violently storms into the temple and physically throws out all of Tobiah's possessions onto the streets. So literally man handles them out of the temple. It's almost humorous. Try and picture the scene. Can you imagine Nehemiah with this fiery look in his eyes as he made his way to the temple? Not looking left, not looking right. He doesn't acknowledge anyone in his path. Everyone gets out of his way, for it's evident he was on a mission. Can you imagine the priests and the Levites jumping to the side as he made his way through the temple? Can you hear the heated words that must have been unleashed upon Eliashib if Nehemiah happened to come across his path? And I do wonder if Tobiah was home when Nehemiah began his cleansing work. It must have been quite the sight as Nehemiah dumped all of the possessions of Tobiah out on the streets. Can you picture the gobsmacked looks of the faces of the people? Can you hear the whispers? 
What in the world is happening? What is he doing? This is insane. And I'm sure there were some who thought this action was completely inappropriate. How, how can he behave like this? What is he doing? What did, Nehemiah, what did Tobiah rather do to him? You know, but Nehemiah thought it was necessary to completely cleanse the temple of this gross impurity, this disgusting compromise that had been embraced. And when we consider the actions of Jesus when it came to the temple, it becomes pretty clear that Nehemiah's reaction was exactly the same as his Lord's. Nehemiah's action was certainly strong. He removed all of Tobiah's possessions. He had the rooms cleansed, had them fumigated, whatever that involved. And then ensured that the rooms functioned as God had intended them to function. It was a concern to Nehemiah when his God was dishonored. This was something that he refused to accept. He understood the absolute necessity of religious purity, that it needed to be maintained at any cost. And hence he had the courage to confront the gross atrocities that had been accepted. But this was not the end of the courageous confrontation For Nehemiah then ordered a public service for the reading of the Scriptures. Chronologically, verses 1, 2, and 3 come after verses 4 through to 9. If you look at verse 4, it says, And before this. So before the reading of the Scriptures, Nehemiah's cleansing took place. And notice in verses 1 and 2, the text that Nehemiah chose, it dealt with the Ammonite and the Moabite. This is a reading from Deuteronomy 23. Now these were the nations that resulted from Lot's incestuous relationships. But what is significant is that Tobiah was an Ammonite. So the text chosen was directly confronting the issue at hand. Nehemiah knew that many probably had no issue at all with Tobiah. And that this reading could potentially make people feel uncomfortable. is going to be confronting. It would be very tempting to choose a different text. But no. A real boldness, a real courage was shown to confront the elephant in the room. Now the people are reminded that both the Ammonite and the Moabite were not allowed into the temple of God. It was forbidden because of their terrible treatment of the Israelites. If you remember the story, they failed to give them food and water when they were in great need. And instead of blessing them by providing these basic necessities, they hired a prophet to curse them, to anathematize them. And hence, as promised in the Abrahamic covenant, those who cursed Israel would likewise be cursed. And we see this fulfilled before us. The Ammonites and the Moabites were a cursed people. Their descendants were forever the victims of their ancestors' brutality. And for parents, there is a lesson there. Often our children end up suffering greatly from our sin and stupidity. Now, as this text of Scripture was read, we see the power of the word. In verse 3, the people respond. 
they realize their error and they separate themselves. They not only hear the word, but they do the word. And this, beloved, reminds us of the great power of the Bible. It's, it's a sword, it's a hammer, it's not just empty words, but, but a living word. A word that possesses life-changing power, for it's accompanied by the Holy Spirit. And we see a great convicting work amongst the people. And as is always the case throughout church history, it is a renewed focus, a renewed emphasis on the scriptures that produces reformation and revival. And this scene is no different. Now this passage of scripture before us is very hard hitting. It's in your face, it's confrontational that that there is some aggression And in our accepting and tolerating society, this makes many feel uncomfortable and even criticize such drastic action. It's evident from the text that Nehemiah was angry. Verse 8 makes this clear. It grieved him sore. He was furious. But my friend, this was the correct response. This was the right response, the godly response. For not all anger is sinful. There is such a thing as righteous anger. For anger is ascribed both to God the Father and to Jesus Christ. And we could all do well with a little bit more of righteous anger. An anger that despises injustice, immorality and ungodliness of every sort. As the psalmist says, ye that love the Lord hate evil. This type of anger is legitimate. It is proper for the believer to possess a righteous indignation towards sin and towards that which is done against the Lord and against his will. Jesus certainly exercised righteous anger, didn't he? Remember the scene when he made the whip and drove the money changers out of the temple? As one writer said, Jesus was always angered when the Father was maligned or when others were mistreated. But he was never selfishly angry at what was done to him. That is the measure of righteous anger. Anger that is selfish, undisciplined and vindictive is sinful and has no place, not even momentarily, in the Christian life. But anger that is unselfish and is based on love for God and concern for others is not only permissible but commanded. A genuine love cannot help being angered at that which injures the object of that love. And this explains the anger of Nehemiah. He loved his God and his God had been dishonored. And hence this led to righteous indignation. And beloved, how often this righteous anger is something that is missing in, in our lives. You know, we, we, could, we would do well to have a little bit more, I think. Now, sure, we must be careful, for there is a real danger of righteous anger becoming sinful anger very quickly. But the more common reality is being complacent, compromising and cowardly when it comes to confronting sin, particularly in our own backyard. The easy thing for Nehemiah to do was to ignore the sin. That would not be the right thing to do. And we must learn from this. 
We have a particular obligation towards one another as believers making up this local body to hold each other accountable. And not to ignore, but rather to lovingly and graciously confront the open and obvious sin that is present in the lives of our brothers and sisters. Now, this will not necessarily be a weekly thing that we do every Lord's Day. You know, we don't have to walk around and go, oh no, I haven't confronted someone's sin yet. There's Bill, I'm going to find a sin in his life. You know, that's, that's, not, that's not the idea here. But nevertheless, this is our God-given responsibility to each other. James 5.16 says, Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another. That There is a real freedom and power in confessing one to another, for then we can assist each other. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. The the spiritually mature is instructed to restore a fellow believer. Help one who has fallen into the pit of sin. Throw them down a rope. And then there's the portion of Scripture known as the church discipline text. Matthew 18, verses 15 through to 17 says, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, Go and tell him his faults between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. But if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. You know, my friend, it is clear that this is part of our duty as Christians to confront and endeavour to restore one another when we fall into sin. Now, I understand there are a lot of difficulties in this process. It will be uncomfortable. There will be times when it is done wrongly. It requires great wisdom. It should be done in love, seasoned with lots of grace, done humbly with no self-righteousness, and the goal should always be restoration, not condemnation. I believe it's very important to consider this church discipline text in its context. The context is the parable of the hundred sheep, where one is lost and the shepherd goes to find that sheep. The context is loving restoration, and that is to be the goal of all correction. If that's not our motive, then we better not dare attempt it. You know, we live in a very independent and autonomous time, where people hate authority, people hate accountability. But beloved, that is not how Jesus has designed his church to function. We have a a corporate responsibility to exercise church discipline when necessary, according to the scriptures. And we have a responsibility to confront the open and obvious sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters. We must do this carefully and graciously. And of course, we must follow the teaching of Jesus and make sure we are trying to remove that splinter when there's a 6 by 2 hanging out of our eyes. But my friend, we all have this duty to correct each other in a loving way. 
And in the extreme cases, the church has an ultimate responsibility to excommunicate the one who is living in sin according to the processes laid out in Matthew chapter 18. Now in understanding this text, that this sin must be significant. That meaning, how can you be a Christian and be living like that? It must also be outward. That meaning there needs to be evidence. It can't be a case of, you know, Brandon, I can read your mind and what's going on there is terrible. And it also needs to be unrepentant. There, there is no remorse. The individual wants to continue to live in sin. And when the process is followed, it ultimately calls for excommunication and the person is to be treated as an unbeliever. Of course, one hopes that this is an incredibly rare situation for the church. But Jesus does expect us to perform this when required. But although this may be a rarity, our individual responsibility to one another should occur a lot more than it actually does. Now, as I said before, it's not as though we pull out the magnifying glass and be the detective to try and nail people on anything and everything. Certainly not. But but when it's obvious, when a brother or sister has fallen into sin, we mustn't ignore it, but rather be willing to have that tough chat. Offer correction, challenge the sin. You know, we must all do this. And there is a particular duty for church leaders to be diligent in this area. You know, Nehemiah was not a coward. He confronted and challenged the obvious sin, and this is to be a practice that we follow. We have a, a responsibility to, to assist each other in the Christian life. And my friend, may we be willing to do this when required, and may we be humble enough to receive it. May we, with God's help, cultivate a loving and gracious environment where we are willing to correct and willing to receive correction. May we lay aside our fear and timidity and be willing to have that uncomfortable conversation in order to benefit your brother and sister. For really, it's, it's incredibly unloving if we do not help them. And if we fail to help them, you know, it also drags down the cause of Christ. So may we, you know, like Nehemiah, you know, be willing to be courageous confronters when necessary. Amen. Let's pray.